Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon. I'm a retired NYPD homicide sergeant, did almost 27 years. And today, I have a very special guest, Detective First Grade Michael O'Keefe, not just a detective, but also an author. Michael's written a novel called Shot to Pieces, A Reckoning in Brooklyn, a short storybook called 13 Stories, and a novella called Not Buried Deep Enough. And today what we're going to talk about is a little bit unusual. We're going to talk about the Netflix special that they did a documentary on the Ripper murders in England that occurred in 1975. And the Ripper murders lasted from 1975 to 1980, uh, obviously a serial killer. And we're going to put the investigation under a microscope. Also, the documentarians, I think I can call them that, they made this a little bit political. They, they, had, they claimed that the investigation was tainted um, by sexism and classism. And Mike and I both have been involved in real big investigations. So we can tell you a lot about the investigation and we can uh, weigh in on whether uh, the fact that this perpetrator wasn't arrested for five years, whether it had anything to do with sexism and classism. Mike, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here, Bill. Yeah, it's great to have you. You've been on the show before, and uh, you're a knowledgeable guy. Now, you you watched the documentary, right, Mike? Yeah, I did. I actually uh, I made a point of it uh, last night watching it. And just give me a, a bird's eye opinion on on what uh, what you saw. Uh, well, keep in mind, 30, 40 years ago that this occurred, and I watched how uh, the England Metropolitan Police handles a serial uh, murder investigation, and I wasn't terribly impressed. <laughs> no, there was there a, were a lot, lot of, of uh, yeah, there were a, a, a lot of problems in the investigation. You know, Mike, I just wanted to read something uh, that uh, was talked about by the people who made the documentary. Mm -hmm. uh, her name was Ellen Woods and uh, Jesse Vile. And they said, uh, or, or people that uh, critiqued this, they said the series highlights the prominent sexism and classism at this time, as both the police and the press failed to give proper attention to cases that involved women who were sex workers or lived in poverty. This dehumanization contributed to uh, and enabled the perpetrator to evade capture for over five years. Thoughts? <laughs> well, it wasn't classism, obviously, um, because they created a task force right after the first murder, and there were a minimum of 145 cops and detectives working on it. So obviously, in, despite the fact that they identified the first victim as a prostitute. The fact that she came from poverty and, and was a sex worker didn't, I mean, they spent an awful lot of money trying to solve her homicide. The original case that started off that what we know now probably wasn't his first attack, but it was his first murder. And uh, the first, the first victim, Mike, is a, uh, a woman named Wilma McCann. Yeah. She was 28 yeah, years the, old. She had four children. Mm -hmm. And you're absolutely right. There was a, a horrendous case mm -hmm. that occurred in 1969 where he attacked a, a prostitute 
and he didn't kill her. And the police caught him and she didn't want to prosecute. So they let him go. Right. This guy graduated five years later to becoming a serial killer. Which is actually one of the weaknesses in the in the initial investigation. Once they identified it as a serial murderer, as investigators, we understand you don't have filet mignon your first time out of the barn. Maybe you have a few French fries first. So go back. He graduated to murder. He didn't start there. Right. And the other aspect of the case, based upon the crime scene, it was clear that he was staging his victims. Well, this is a development. This is a this is a developed fantasy that he's trying to to fulfill. So clearly, there are going to be fits and starts that occurred before that. That are going to be other indicators, things that you can look at. Uh, cruelty to animals, for instance, is usually a, a, a sign a, of a serial killer. Yeah, a sign of a serial yeah. killer. Uh, bullying. Mike, Mike explain uh, explain to our audience what staging is it's basically setting up the corpse uh or the body in the crime scene in such a way to fulfill a picture in the killer's mind he's trying to fulfill a fantasy or, like or, in, or to shock the investigators that too and or, or in some instances to mislead the investigators i mean but all it's, of these it's usually displayed be, in a in a sexually provocative way Right. right, and yet to, all of these victims, none of them were uh, were sexual. There was there was no sexual abuse in the commission of these murders. They appeared to be sexual in nature, right? Uh, and ultimately, and we don't know because they didn't discuss the psychology after the fact when they finally caught this guy and debriefed them. It doesn't seem like they ever got into his emotional modus operandi. Why did you do this? Right. Never mind how. We know how. We have all the evidence in crime scenes. Right. Tell us why. And I don't believe that was ever explored. Mike, let me just also um, touch upon the difference in 1975 as compared to now 2021. Yeah. And both of us have worked hundreds of homicides, right? Mm -hmm. And technology has helped tremendously in homicide investigation. For example... There are video cameras all over the place now, all over Everywhere. the world, right? Everywhere. Um, there, people have cell phones. Cell phones are a walking, talking GPS device. Mm -hmm. So for the victim and the perpetrator, they come into play lots of times in a homicide investigation, as you know. And then that three, that three, um, those three letters that changed the world of investigation DNA. And mm -hmm. that didn't exist in 1975. One of the things that would do today, if someone was ever successful, would do uh, successfully do 13 murders, it would link the cases together so that you would know you had the same perpetrator committing these crimes. Mm -hmm. Well, it's actually what they counted on back then was blood grouping. And uh, even in the narrowest blood grouping, you're still talking about 30% of the population. And ostensibly, it took them until those those letters, those fake letters were sent before they got a sample that they could could do blood grouping. Let, let, let's hold and off on that. he wasn't the guy. Mike, let's hold off on that for a while. All right. that, that's okay. really interesting. But when you talk about blood grouping, yeah, I was like, when they mentioned it, 50% of the population was O, 
25% was AB. So mm-hmm. there's 75%. And then the rest was split between A and some other rare um, blood types. So it was almost like for elimination purposes, yeah. You, if, if you had old blood, yeah, you could eliminate, you know, how many people, have, 50% of the population have old blood. Right. So it doesn't really help you all that much. No. <laughs> Nar- narrows your talent pool a little bit. That's all. Yeah. Whereas DNA is so precise. And now with something specific called. Specific to one person. Yes. And now that's with so genealogical DNA. That's frightening. We can use something called familial DNA. Yeah. To actually find a perpetrator whose DNA wasn't maybe recovered, but we can bring it up through the family tree. Yeah. Pretty amazing, right? Well, now let's talk now, Mike. Talk about tell our audience about the MO of um, of this killer. And his name was Peter Sutcliffe. Let's talk about his MO. Okay, well, Peter Sutcliffe was uh they called him a lorry driver in England. That's a truck driver. But it's local deliveries. He's basically driving a panel truck. So he's very familiar with the roadways uh, all around Yorkshire. Uh, He worked for a trucking concern in Yorkshire. Uh, It's a poor neighborhood. Uh, There's a lot of sex workers. There are red light districts and clubs that prostitutes uh, generally go to. Uh, So basically the area that he worked and lived is kind of target rich for a serial killer. If you're looking... To get, uh, and not necessarily prostitutes, just women on their own out in the street. This is a great place for him to hunt. And uh, his MO was he, he would encounter a woman on the street, whether she be a prostitute or someone else, engage them in conversation. And at some point in the crime, either in his vehicle or out on the street, he'd bash them in the head to knock them unconscious. With a, with a hammer, right? With a very with a specific hammer. implement. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's uh, they ended up recovering several hammers that he used, but uh, with a hammer, uh, he would take them to a location where he wanted the body to be, and uh, probably post mortem would uh, would mutilate them with various knives and screwdrivers and continue to hit them with the hammer. I mean, he did some hellacious damage to uh, to some of these victims. What they discovered with some of the bodies when they would find them is he would go back because the bodies weren't found and he would move them to a more public location and stage them there. So uh, this guy wanted his work to be discovered. While obviously he didn't want to be discovered himself, he wanted to continue to try and fulfill that that fantasy, that picture in his head. Right. And there's just a picture of... uh of the Ripper. And at some point they were able to make a wanted poster uh, because a, well, as you know, Mike, being an investigator, the best witness is a surviving witness. A dead body can tell you something based on the forensic evidence possibly, but the best witness is an eyeball witness. And the eyeball witness created a tremendous sketch that looked just like this picture of him. Mm-hmm. We'll go back. That was this is a surviving. Uh, I think she may she 
provided this was a great the girl that they discounted though because she wasn't she wasn't even remotely similar to a to, to a prostitute or a sex worker and you know mike let's talk about that too and we we spoke about it off camera before let's talk about investigative tunnel vision which this case what rather than say the the lack of success in this investigation was because of sexism and classism let's talk about investigative tunnel vision as being one of the things that prevented them to do a better investigation than they in fact did yeah well they got initially they got trapped into uh locking into a mindset for the killer and assigning an emotional state to him that they don't know actually existed his initial victims or at least the ones that the the ones that were killed and were found did have some involvement in prostitution. Doesn't mean that he that he hated prostitutes. If anything, he hated women. Right. I mean, to, to you know, to to, uh, to dominate them and and, and mutilate them uh, before and after death. Obviously, there's a rage there, but I don't think it was specific to prostitutes. And later on in the investigation, they missed out. The police missed out on the opportunity to interview living witnesses because they discounted them as being part of the pattern because they lived and which they weren't is, sex Mike, workers. which is the worst thing you can ever do as an investigator. No, right? you have to broaden your mind. You have, right. You have to have an open mind and, and mm -hmm. start out here. And then as you get a suspect, you narrow your scope. But in the beginning and if you don't have a suspect you have to have an open mind it this could be anybody right right well they were so locked in on the prostitution angle early on in the pattern when they were doing door-to-door -door interviews of, of of all uh basically everybody in the shire they spoke to him and they asked him you know do you frequent prostitutes how do you feel about prostitutes do you like prostitutes they were so locked in on the prostitute aspect and while we don't know because they nobody ever asked the question, he might not feel one way or another about prostitutes. It, them, the fact that they were involved in prostitution might have never come into his consideration. Although Mike, they you were know, available he, he, targets. He was quoted when he was um, when he was arrested, and he may have just played into this because the press fed this to him too. He said, "God sent me on a mission to kill prostitutes." But that was the narrative. That was that, later for court. Yeah. That was done. That was done with the benefit of him speaking to counsel, and right. they were going for they were going for an insanity plea, and it was only then that he introduced the idea that he had any animosity toward prostitutes. So it was basically. I mean, that was handed to him. Yeah, I, I, that's what I'm saying. Is attorneys, that, and that's why you know people always ask us. Why do you hold things back in an investigation? And that's a perfect example of it because the press was feeding him this prostitution thing that, uh, oh, yeah, I'm only killing prostitutes. But holding back information and evidence is important. <clears throat> so when you finally do get the perpetrator, mm. you have something to interrogate him with. Well, because they were so forthcoming with the facts of each crime, they had the letter writer claiming to be Jack the Ripper. And then they had the voice recording that got sent to the investigator. I'm still not content that they're the same people. I am content that neither one of them was Sutcliffe. 
That's but what I don't told- know if the letter writer was the same guy that sent the voice recording. They could have been led down the primrose path by two separate people that had nothing to do with the crime. Mike, this is what you're talking about. They reproduced the letter on a billboard, mm-hmm. right? And right. in addition, they recorded the recording that they were sent, which purportedly was the killer. And tell us what that turned out to be. Well... It turned out to be uh, basically a nut that read the paper and wanted to insert himself into the investigation. And again, that's why... But here's the thing. Keeping an open mind, I'm not content or convinced that the letter writer was the guy that sent the tape. I am convinced that neither one of them had anything to do with the crime. These were the leads that the, the investigators ultimately got tracked into following while more bodies piled up and up and up. And they were looking for a guy with a with a with an accent. Meanwhile, there were living victim witnesses that they discounted as being part of the pattern. Who would have thrown that tape right out the window? They would have because he didn't have a Georgia accent. He had a Yorkshire accent because right. he was from Yorkshire. You know something, Mike? We've been on cases um, where people that are of a very high rank. Mm-hmm call shots from 10 miles away from uh, ground zero, from where the investigation is taking place. And they, in fact, because of ego, do not listen to the investigators, do not listen to the detectives. Instead, like on this case, they come up with a theory that, no, this is is who did it. And that's called, again, investigative tunnel vision. Mm. And you you, want to touch upon that? Yeah, well, in the NYPD, we're fortunate. We, uh, well, we have, you know, the chief of detectives is ultimately in charge of major investigations, but they'll create a task force and they'll put an inspector and a captain in charge of it. But for the most part, the detectives and the frontline supervisors, the sergeants and the lieutenants, are given a certain amount of autonomy to investigate the case. And the bosses, accept what they're being given because they know that the detectives, the field detectives are on the street wearing out their shoes to get this information. Right. So the, the idea of uh, this high concept, this theory coming from the, from the, from the palace doesn't occur in the NYPD to the level that I saw in this particular case you had. And I, 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 I said it to you and it's the thought that keeps going through my mind. The moral of the story is Don't let police administrators run an investigation. They're not in the right lane. But yet that that occurs all the time, even to this day. And they make decisions that are um, are not correct, you know? Yeah, they want things that don't have anything to do with the case. Uh, What's nice, though, on the field, though, when I was doing my homicides in the 8-3, I would address their concerns. But it was basically treating them like mushrooms. I fed them shit and kept them in the dark and did what needed to be done on the case. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, they got a DD5 to pamper their whim. But for the most part, the case went the way that I directed it. And my bosses were on, on point with me. I mean, I didn't lie to them because they're down there in the grime with me. Right. But, you know, when you start getting to the point of the inspectors and the chiefs and the super chiefs, yeah, okay. Well, let's let's talk about even from the point of view of running this investigation and from a patrol standpoint, 
obviously, if you were the head of patrol, you would have been paying very much special attention to the red light districts, maybe even put a couple of undercovers out, maybe a female cop dressed as a prostitute, which in this case could be a tremendously dangerous uh, operation. But, you know, she has backup. Uh, also, pulling over cars, pulling over trucks mm. that are in the process. It didn't seem like all that much was done with that, you know, although they, they seem to have a ton of paper, but it was like misdirected paper. Yeah, it was, you know, you couldn't see the forest for the trees. There was so much paper. But the only time that it looked like they were trying to approach this investigation from the ground one of the living, and unfortunately, she was the, the surviving witness who had a brain injury and couldn't remember anything. Only once did the detective go into the bar where she was accosted from. Other than that, I didn't see any, uh, like you said, that no undercover. In, why aren't you running a John operation? Right. If you think the guy is killing prostitutes and picking up prostitutes, why aren't you running a John operation? Why aren't you putting vehicle descriptions out or having your patrol force from this time to this time, every time you see a male and a female in a car, why aren't you pulling them over and identifying them, making your presence known? At the very least, you're going to get some suspects. Ro roadblocks. How about roadblocks? Ro roadblocks would work also. You know, uh, after a homicide happens, shut everything down. Yeah. Chances are you're going to pull over you know, in the, I don't know if you're familiar with the case, the Beltway Sniper. Yes. Uh, they were stopped a few times before they got caught. They were yeah. stopped, but there was another, you talk about investigative tunnel vision. In that case, it was the big white panel truck, which did not exist. Right. But that they were, became- They were shooting out of the back of a Caprice, right? Yes. That became the false narrative, which became, <laughs> in that case, investigative tunnel vision. Right. And in this one- it was the voice on the tape and uh, the person writing the letters to the uh, the chief of police that who was running the investigation, who had such bad tunnel vision that a detective came into him with the perpetrator uh, who looked exactly like uh, like the the flyer Peter Sutcliffe, and and he told and he told the chief he didn't like his answers and the chief screamed at him. Yeah. Get out of my office. He threatened to bounce from the traffic yeah. for the rest of his if career. If he doesn't have this accent and if he doesn't know this and doesn't know yeah. that, get the hell out of my, you know, that's, you know, that's horrendous. That's a horrendous type. You know, as we say, again, to beat this to death, you have to have an open mind when you're doing investigations, not yeah. closed mind. It's, oh, no, it can't be him because he's he's not tall enough. He's not heavy enough. He's a little too light. He's a little too dark. It can't be well, him. They, 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 largely because they had so very little evidence to begin with. When they got the letters and they got the uh, the tape that they still wanted to be the same guy and wanted both of them to be the killer, they hung their hat on that because it was something tactile, something they could talk about in their press conferences. Mm -hmm. uh, when ultimately they both turned out to be red herrings. And maybe separate red herrings. You know, they weren't evidence at all. They were frauds. Right. But when we, you know, when we talk about physical evidence back in 1975, of course there could be blood evidence. And one of the things we all know from working homicides is that when someone kills with a knife or a sharp edged instrument, usually they do what? 
They're cut themselves. Exactly. More often than Ex- not. Exactly. So, and particularly a crime of this type of brutality, that blade's flying all over the place. You know he's he, he's cutting himself. Right. So his blood would probably be commingled with the blood of of his victims. Yeah. And but again, there was no DNA. No back DNA then. at the time. Yeah. So uh, very difficult. But, you know, so many things were done wrong from an investigative standpoint. And when you talk, when you talk about someone just wrote in the, uh, in the live chat, the biggest two words in uh, investigation is task force. And that's, the, that's how they think it's going to solve everything, a task force, you know. But sometimes, and I've said this on other shows, that more is not always better. You know, no. if you have 100 detectives, they're going to be tripping over each other. Yeah, you got to weed it down to 10 or 15 guys that know the case mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, they know everything about the case. And, you know, task force, that's why they, there's weaknesses to that. They don't always work, you know. Right. Right. But, you know, when they talk about also the classism, first of all, hello to these documentary makers. Uh, when they talk about classism, most violent crime is done in poor neighborhoods. I'd hate to just yeah. remind you of that if you yeah. didn't know that. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, they're just, they're, again, they're using 2020 mores and 2020 politics for a 1975 case. Well, the other thing is what, what blows that argument out of the water. Yes, these were poor, the victims were poor, uh, for the most part, poor or middle-class women, uh, in this poor area where the crimes are recurring, they spent an awful lot of time, an awful lot of manpower, and an awful lot of money not caring about the poor. I don't right. see it. It's it's just not there. The, the, the argument doesn't hold. And with respect to sexism, <clears throat> all of the victims were female. All of the assets that went into catching this guy, and, and they did every – I don't think they were particularly good at it. But they spent everything they had to try and catch this guy through the course of the pattern. Uh, where some of these documentarians, the, the, the feminists, their comments, uh, they were told women are in danger from this time to this time. It's not a good idea to be out unescorted. You should go in groups. They talk about it as, as, as if it's a curfew. Wasn't a curfew, or there wouldn't be thirteen murders. No, but they nobody spoke... was infringing upon their freedom. They were just giving them a heads up. Right, just killing women. They spoke as if that was a sexist thing for the police to give them a heads up. Like maybe women should stay off the street between eight and ten in this area because we have a serial killer loose. Yeah, it was advice. It wasn't. Yeah. Uh, well, if it they wasn't told an edict, me it wasn't policy. You know, if it they wasn't told law. <laughs> If they told me a serial killer is killing six foot one inch handsome white Irish guys that are in their 60s between eight and 10, I'd stay off the street then. Mm. I wouldn't say it was sexist. <laughs> right, right. Well, along the same lines, I was a, I was a sophomore in high school when Son of Sam was, uh, was running around New York. My offensive line coach from Brooklyn, um, and he was just always in a bad mood. And finally, we asked him, hey, coach, why are you always in a bad mood? And he said, if the cops don't catch this son of Sam, 
<laughs> I'm never getting laid again. <laughs> Our father won't let his girlfriend out of the house. That's why he was in a bad mood. Now, nobody told her except for her father that she couldn't go out while this guy was killing people. But she probably wouldn't have gone out anyway. Because if, if you're in the target group, yes. you're in danger. But except, you know, they had some information even during the Son of Sam case that I think turned out not to be true, that he was just targeting women with long brown hair. I think yeah. that that was just who he found in the lovers lanes. It just happened and to be probably most women have long brown hair. I and think one of the victims, it might have been Stacy Moskowitz, actually had short hair. Yeah. So that was again investigative tunnel vision and and false information. But and, they were on the right. They were on the right track that, that he was striking uh, at lovers lanes near clubs, near right. discos. So consequently, they were looking for some sort of traffic information. And the focus of their investigation was in the right direction. And ultimately, um, they got a tip regarding the car. And then they had to basically hunt down the cop that wrote the summons. And, and that's how they ended up getting him. Uh, but they didn't have tunnel vision. That was actually a very well-run investigation. Who knows how many people would have been killed if they weren't on, on point as much as they right. were. Um, but Mike, one of, one enough, of the, let me just stop you for one second. Ahead. One of the things that we look at as police and as investigators, especially bosses who are running large-scale investigations, is we look at things that are patternable. Mm -hmm. Days of the week. Is there a pattern to the day of the week this person is striking? Times. Time can tell you a lot of things. Oh, he's hitting at 8 o'clock at night. Maybe he just gets out of work. He's on the way home. He's taking this specific road because he must work around that area. Mm -hmm. He's hitting, you know, this is done a lot with rapists, you know, yeah. maybe a rapist. He, he's going inside. Maybe he's the delivery guy, you know. So all of these things, you can make certain assumptions based on patternable things, you know. And what is patternable? You know, uh, as I said, time, day, dates, all of those things can be patternable. And of right. course, again, then you come up with MO, which is modus operandi. We we use we use acronyms in the police department. We think everyone knows what they stand for, you yeah. know. But that's Latin for method of operation, you know. So MO. And then there's also something called signature, which uh, is a little more in depth the way someone commits a crime, you know. Yeah. And then this guy's signature was he used a screwdriver to stab instead of, instead of a knife. It was a sharpened screwdriver. Well, he used both, but what they noticed, there were circular stab wounds that they attributed to a Phillips head screwdriver. So the, the combination of the screwdriver, the knife and the hammer, I mean, he made it very plain. He was guilty of all of these crimes. It's just, uh, he didn't make it hard for them to figure it out because it was present, you know, the uh, pathological, uh, information available to the detectives was all right there. He wasn't hiding anything. And I'd like to talk about, there's another thing. And at a couple of the crime scenes, he left a boot print, a boot footprint. Yeah. Now we know that in investigation and in evidence as the bottom of a boot can be something called class characteristics. And today, uh, if it's a specific boot, what's the famous boot everyone wears? Uh, uh, Timberland. Timberlands. A Timberland boot has a certain bottom to it and yeah. different brands of Timberland boots have different bottoms. And 
believe it or not, these companies keep catalogs of the bottom of what their boot looks like. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they did that in 1975. So that's a class characteristic. And then there's in something- this case, in this particular case, uh, that was a very common bottom. It's basically a construction work boot. You didn't have the, the broad spectrum of, of boot companies that you have today. Right. Back then, basically everybody who wore construction boots was everybody that, that did a manual labor job, drove a truck, anything of that nature. What, but they did classify the boot prints and, and they, they noticed there was an uneven amount of wear on the right boot. So they had. I was. I was getting a signature from the boots. Mike, I was getting they, to that. That there's okay. class. Sorry about that. And then there's. So, it's okay. There's individual characteristics. Yeah. If you stepped on a sharp object and it left an indentation in your boot, that's unique to Michael O'Keefe's boot, boot yeah. his right foot, because he stepped on a, a sharp metal object and it left a gash in the bottom of his boot. So if you're a serial killer and you step on someone and leave an imprint of that boot in the dirt or on their body even, or on their clothing. Right. Yeah, the first thing was class characteristics. And the second is individual characteristics, which is tremendously strong, strong evidence. Right, right. But th th it didn't appear that they were looking, that even the suspects that they were speaking to, did they ask to see their boots? Not did the individual of. detectives make doing the interviews were they even apprised of the fact that there's there's boot prints as evidence available? There was just this. The problem was the information was centralized and available only to people who weren't actually on the street doing the investigation. Right. That's, you know, you know, Mike, one if you're of the not things, told something, you can't know it. Mike, one of the things that I like to tell people, because there's a lot of people throughout this, you know, YouTube world and all the social media that are doing these real crime shows. And many of them uh, really don't know what they're talking about, right. you know? And I, I'd like to tell people, this is how it's really done. And when I, a lot of times I would run a, a large investigation and I would have all the detectives in for a briefing and me, myself, the Lieutenant, the captain, we would run the investigation. And it's the, one of the most important things to do. And you know, this too, is that the change of every tour, is to have a briefing on all the new personnel that's coming in to work at, at nighttime. Mm -hmm. and you tell, you let anyone speak who wants to speak. Any investigator that talked to anyone, did a DD5, collected evidence, results of evidence, you let them speak in this meeting because that's the only way investigators can get up to speed on what's going on. Mm -hmm. The secret squirrel shit is no good. That, that, and you know what happens because you're laughing. Yeah. Some guys that want to make a splash, I'm not going to tell everyone because I'm going to go get that guy tonight. That's mm. the worst thing any investigator can ever do. No, no, there's something worse. I worked with a guy that did this. <laughs> Before you come to work, even though he wasn't working on your case, he read your case folder, and then he sneaks into the boss's office and he whispers red herrings in his ear. And then you, can't, you come in and you have to talk the boss off the ledge for an hour. Yeah. And tell him that doesn't apply to this case. You've been lied to. Don't let everybody read my case folder. It's between you and me and whoever's working with me. No, you're right. I, I've, number of, I've seen no. people do that to, with the chief. 
chief, this yeah. is what I think happened. And you're yeah. like, dude, why don't you shut up? Yeah. You have nothing to do with this. And you're pissing in this guy's ear. And then yeah. we got to deal with it. And by the way, duty Ron, thank you so much for that super chat. Michael O'Keefe and I are buffing out with this investigation. And <laughs> it's good to be the one critiquing rather than having people critique us. Right. Because oh. <laughs> yeah. we've, we've been on the other side of the critique and a lot of people out there listening to this have been on the other side of the critique, but this is a fascinating case. And we're coming at it basically because the people that made this documentary made specific allegations of sexism and classism. And perhaps there was some of that relative to the prostitutes, but it wasn't the only problem. There were investigative problems here. Yeah. And hello to the documentarians. We just want to inform them that most crimes happen in poor neighborhoods. So if you want to say classism, well, you know, most violent crimes happen in poor neighborhoods. I'm sorry to inform you of that, but that happens to be the truth. Hmm. Two poor people, by the way. Majority of victims of violent crime are, are the poor themselves. Absolutely. Within the community. So, you know, I didn't see a lack of effort or care on the part of the investigators. I saw a lack of professionalism in that they just, they weren't sound investigative. Uh, my big problem, again, is top of the food chain isn't doing the investigation. The information that was needed for the guys on the ground was never getting down there. And too much information was going out to the public. Which Mike, you're, you're preaching to the choir. Hallelujah. Yeah. I love that because people ask us all the time on these real crime shows, why shouldn't uh, the, the uh, community know everything the police know? And you just hit it on the head because it, it compromises the investigation totally compromises the investigation cat in the hat thank you so much for that uh ten dollar super chat you this is fantastic uh you know as i said I, whenever i get a super chat i feel like a pole dancer but in a good way <laughs> in a good way i feel like a pole dancer so cat in the hat thank you so much yeah so mike there's so many things with this investigation that look any case that's lasting for five years and people are getting murdered yeah. Community and the press are going to be outraged. And you know something? Police departments react to the press. Yeah. And sometimes the press really can hurt investigations because the pressure that they put on the police department. For example, on the NYPD, anything happens in Central Park, you know, they want to call in uh, the National Guard, they want to call in an airstrike. You know, it's just because that piece of property is so highly political that any crime that happens in it, the police department gets tremendous, tremendous pressure from the politicians above. Yeah. And we'd also like to dispel the rumor, and, and we'll tell you this outright. No murders are treated the same way. And believe it or not, and we'll tell you this outright, and this is the truth, and if you don't believe it, you better believe it. According to where the murder occurs will dictate how much attention it gets. And that just happens to be a fact. And the police department, the mayor, they'll all deny this to the end of time, but it happens to be to be true. Well, that's an example of what classism does come into it. The interesting thing about it is, however, because we are decentralized the way that we are, the actual detectives doing the investigation in the poor neighborhood that isn't getting any press still care. 
We're still right. working. You're right. The detective. Yeah. I don't takes... care if City Hall cares also. I don't care what they care about. I have a murder. I have to speak for that dead person. That's right. That's I don't right. need the mayor to tell me that I need to speak for that person. I've made an oath. That's what I do. A hundred percent. Politics notwithstanding. You know, Mike, I've had, I've had uh, murders of like, uh, <laughs> like young kids. One time I remember we, we had a 13 year old kid was stabbed in the projects in the two, three by a 16 year old kid. And right. I took that so personally, I couldn't sleep. I was at work at, you know, before everyone else got there and I made, you know, I just worked that case so hard and I'm not, I was the boss, but I pushed the detectives to the point, you know, they were like, Hey Sarge back off a little bit. And we <laughs> solved the case, but the kid was 13 years old. And to see a 13 year old lying dead on a gurney that has an effect on you. It's a terrible waste. Yeah. So. Crazy. So yeah, no, you a hundred percent. The investigators take these things so personally and they're going to work as hard as, as hell on a case. And, but I'm just saying the politics of investigation and you know, you know, it exists, you know? Yeah. Well, the, 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 if, if you're, if you're investigating what is basically regarded by the government and the media, by, by, by the high muckety mucks in the police department and the media as a low priority case, you're not going to get all the manpower, all the assets, uh, all of the money, you're not going to get all of that. So you're going to do, you're, you're going to work with what you have. You know, Mike, you're not so, work, someone you're not said work I, any less hard. Mike, someone said I, I need money for my light bill. But what I didn't <laughs> anticipate was I was using natural light and it started to get dark during the show. So now yeah. I'm turning over. Anyway, that was Duty Run. Duty Run, thank you very much for the $20 super chat. And I did pay my light bill. I just didn't realize that it was going to get darker outside. <laughs> you know, Mike, we're at actually 41 minutes. And I said I wanted to cut this off at about okay. uh, uh, 45 minutes. Any last thoughts? Uh, wrap this up. Uh, well, the one, one just as a television viewer, uh, the one embarrassing moment, I was actually cringing, were when the big bosses had their press conference after they finally got this guy. And they were giddy like schoolgirls. Oh, we're very pleased. We're very pleased. Yeah, yeah. You should be ashamed of yourself. Yeah, you know, it is they they wanted to bask in the limelight of it. You know, I, I love that expression. Uh success has many friends and failure is very lonely. And that Actually, is so true. The right? original the original quote is success has many fathers, but failure is an orphan. Yeah, I love that quote. I just love that. Yeah. Tiffany Marie, thank you so much for the super chat. I'm getting all these friends through my buddy Duty Ron. And as you can <laughs> see, I have some uh, superstar guests. This is Michael O'Keefe, first grade detective, author of three books. Uh, I don't know if he'll mind me saying this, but he's the Michael O'Keefe of the Washington Heights riot fame. He actually fought for his life with a perp 30 something years ago, a perp named Kiko Garcia who wound up not uh, winning the fight, Mike won the fight, and that's why he's here today. And so he's the Michael O'Keefe of uh, the three, four riots that happened a long time ago, and I'm proud to be his friend. And I'm proud to have had him several times on the show, Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I want to thank all of our Patreon fans, all of our YouTube fans. I want to thank Duty Ron, who's been uh, hooking me up with a lot of his fans. 
his fans are now following police off the cuff and real crime stories. And 2021 is going to be a great year for police off the cuff and real crime stories. And I'm going to bring in superstar guests like you see right here, a detective, the retired detective, first grade, Michael O'Keefe. Mike, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you, Bill. I had a lot of fun talking about it's this. Always, it's always fun. And yeah. thank you. Thank you, everyone, for watching. And I'll see you the next time. We're not done with this case. We're going to talk about it a couple more times, maybe even with Mike. We'll get into sure. more of the individual homicides and the evidence and what occurred. Okay, everyone. Good afternoon. Thanks again from Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon. Thank you.